0: Hello, and welcome back to the Masonic Roundtable, the weekly show where Masons from around the world get together to talk about Masonic news and opinions in a friendly and social manner. following disclaimer applies for tonight's broadcast. The thoughts and opinions expressed here are only those of the participants and do not represent any Grand Lodge statements or positions. Keep your conversations open to the public and on the level. Tonight, as usual you can interact through us through the facebook chat or the youtube chat running alongside your screen be forewarned if you say something good enough you'll end up on the show so you all know me my name is jason richards past master vacation Lodge number 16 in clifton virginia and uh rush chairman darn glad to meet you uh brother john is out doing things with family something about vacation rah-rah whatever you know he he is clearly uh he's clearly slacking off tonight but you got me instead and it's not just me we've also got joe martinez
1: hello hello, joe martinez pisces damn glad to be here let's see i am uh still worshipful master of uh lodge number 182 we'll be filling out the bingo card hard tonight and uh super jazzed to be here
0: awesome Thanks, Robert. And by Robert, I'm, I mean Joe. I'm
1: Joe. Yes. Hello.
0: Yeah. How about Robert? Let's get Robert on here.
2: Woo. Hello. Hey, y'all. Robert Johnson, past master, Waukegan Lodge 78, is sitting interim secretary and a, the uh, secretary life. of the premier Masonic Education Lodge in Illinois. For base life. Novum. 1183. For life. For li- Yeah, sure. Well, For no. For life. Maybe for a while, not not life. That's and me.
0: Robert, I would be tickled pink if you would introduce our special guest for tonight.
2: I'd love to. So tonight we have my good friend and brother, James E. Fry, who uh, in real life has worked through so many amazing programs. He's worked with kids. He's uh, done so much psychology. He's broken things down for us. Uh, He wrote for the Midnight Freemasons for a bunch of years. Uh, Always really great stuff. And uh, he's here tonight to talk to us about one of the topics that he's passionate about that he knows way too much about. And uh, he is writing a book about it, but I don't know when that's coming out. I'm going to push him. We're going to get it out. But uh, (laughs) Jim Fry, welcome to the show, brother
3: thanks for having me and uh, you know if you're gonna act as editor i'm always looking for people to proofread I, got you. I got you. <laughs> yeah james fry past master uh, crete lodge 763 past sovereign prince valley danville scottish Rite, current district education officer for the grand lodge of illinois and a current chaplain for spess novum lodge as well
0: awesome Awesome. Well, thank you so much, uh, brother, for coming on the show tonight. Uh, There are some other folks we need to thank, too. Those are our wonderful patrons from Patreon. You all keep the lights on. Thank you so much. Um, You literally keep the lights on because Patreon is how we buy our lights and uh, make sure that we pay our hosting bills on time. So if you're interested, go to patreon.com slash Masonic Roundtable. Join the club. We've got a cool Facebook group that uh, shows you some behind-the-scenes stuff uh, in the show, and we have some really good conversations. So go ahead and uh, and join the fun. Yeah. And, and with that, I'll take it over to Joe Martinez for... The tarot card of the week what? So this week you
2: have got... a banner <laughs> so good
1: oh, john set
0: this up like weeks ago man
1: he's the
2: man what a what a guy thank you don't
0: pay attention
1: <laughs> yes so this week we're gonna let's see i'm gonna dip into the box of tarot cards that barbara has gotten me i, I don't think i've bought a single tarot deck on my own so masonic wives they're the bestest And uh, they buy you cool stuff. So we're going to do the Rota Mundi tarot deck. It is a Rosicrucian tarot deck. Um, We like Rosicrucians here on the Masonic Roundtable. Fun, fun for everyone. You mean this one? Oh, hey! I know (laughs) you. Yes. So, yeah, very cool deck. Um, Lots of stuff in in these cards, let me tell you. So I'm going to shuffle them up. Um, Or there's there's this one that...
0: Ooh. You don't want me to read on the show.
1: No, we need to monetize. We <laughs> can't. Um, so while I'm shuffling, can I say, uh, Brother Fry, uh, huge fan of your written works, man. Um, your uh, what was my favorite uh, on the Midnight Freemasons. The was it In Search of the Lost Word? It was like a multi part thing. Oh, yeah. That was phenomenal. I, I love that work. Um, and I think you wrote stuff on the Occult Lodge on the Midnight Freemasons, too. It was like a big multi-part thing. That was like a lot of time sitting in the bathroom reading, you know, when I had peace and quiet. Um, but, yeah, phenomenal, phenomenal writing, sir. Um, yeah, we've never met in person, but uh, I'll be seeing
3: you next month, right? Uh, yep. At Masonic. It's going to be a heck of a time. If you haven't got tickets yet, you need to. That's
2: right. That's right. Yeah. Run. Don't walk to masonic on chicago.com
1: right, fly <laughs> all, right. all right boom the
0: regardless your flight to masonic on chicago is going to be better than my flight coming out of masonic on kansas
1: <sighs> that was a bad week to be flying
0: yeah yeah my my our plane lost an engine mid-flight oh wow it was, fun. it was fun
1: hey you're here that's all that matters i am here yes right on that's why there's two engines all right, exactly. so the randomizer is going, here we go, and we've got, let me get that in there, that is the King of Swords, King of Swords, look at that, that is, that's a cool card, that is the Tetragrammaton, and we've got Vindica on some scrolls there, we got some angry clouds, there's a lot going on in this card, holy cannoli. But yeah, we've got the King of Swords here, and um, what do we got there? We got decisiveness, we've got decision making, making good decisions, like having cool bros on the show, and brother Fry, mm-hmm. um, yeah, that's a very cool, yeah, I'm, I need to check that card out later, that's a cool card. So yeah, King of Swords, this week, Tower of the Week.
0: Boom. Awesome. Yeah. Cool. Well, we can get into tonight's topic then, which is
1: the Swedenborgian Borgian Borgine. Why don't you ask brother right. James how to say it and then you can say it right. Yeah, there we go.
3: Hey, I say Swedenborgian, but I've learned that the pronac- uh, correct pronunciation of Swedenborgian
0: It's it's the Ernest Borgninean, right.
3: <laughs> Sweden- yes. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, I mean, you know, it really depends on, you know, where you're at, I guess, in Europe and how you pronounce it. I'm going to still pronounce it Swedenborgian because I've just gotten in the habit of saying it that way for the last, like, three years as I've researched it. But the Swedenborgian, right, is really cool. Um, so, a little background on myself. I joined masonry when I was 19 years old. Um Ooh. Soon as I was able to join, I joined because honestly, I wanted uh, to join a fraternity and uh, none of the fraternities at uh, my college really, uh, yeah, really piqued my interest. So as soon as I got into Lodge and I was raised as a master mason, I just jumped right into Masonic symbolism and uh, I'm 36 now. So you can tell that after, a, after about five or six years, you know, you read all the same sources over and over again, and your focus starts to shift. And that's when, uh, it was about five years in, my focus started to shift into um, the quasi-Masonic orders, fringe masonry, as they call it, which there is a lot of very interesting groups that were oftentimes short-lived, and they either died out due to, you know, just a lack of interest. Or, um, you know, just they weren't able to spread, grow lodges, grow membership. But out of all these kind of, you know, odd on the fringe Masonic groups, the Swedenborgian, right, is without a doubt one of the most mysterious. And uh, it emerged in the 18th century. Now, legend holds. Legend holds that the right was the con- contribution of Emanuel Swedenborg on the subject of the emerging Masonic movement. Um, yeah, they say that this is why these degrees are deemed Swedenborgian in nature, uh, but that's the claim of the Grand Master of the American Swedenborgian right, Samuel Beswick. He claims Swedenborg was initiated in 1706 in uh, London, Sweden, not London, England, London, Sweden. However, there is absolutely no evidence of this. Uh, The romantic in me likes to think that, you know, there wasn't any, um, you know, good record keeping back in the early 1700s. So there may be a chance. But yeah, that's probably not the case. Um, The author of The Swedenborgian Rite is more than likely the Masonic scholar Kenneth McKenzie, um, who tried to create a system of these mystical grades and attempted to expand the symbolism of ancient craft masonry into a spiritual journey where the initiate travels through the three heavens of Swedenborg. board. Um, but it's interesting because, you know, when you get to his version of the right, and there were a few different versions of the right, when you get to his version of the right, it is kind of a quasi hermetic, Rosicrucian version of, uh, you know, the original degrees. Um, You know, like I said, the initiate symbolically travels through these three heavens, um, and they're seeking to balance the body, mind, and the soul with the divine forces that those different heavenly realms kind of manifest, um, kind of attuning yourself to those energies. The Swedenborgian rite seeks to incorporate astrological hermetic kabbalistic alchemical symbolism creating a quite ambitious yeah kind of a mess of a hodgepodge of a system so this was most likely due to having a wide range of manuscript and document fragments from a bunch of different sources that they just kind of pieced together um, but if you kind of look at you know how they kind of piece these different uh, philosophies together and kind of compare it with Swedenborgianism, they're really trying to create an individualized universe within the mind of the candidate. The Swedenborgian right focuses on building the temple of New Jerusalem in the third heaven within the soul of the initiate. That's a lot to take in, but... Question.
1: Question. Yeah, question, my dear brother. Uh, just because uh, you you touched on, I was waiting for a good time to ask this question. Because um, I'm not going to claim that I know as much about the Swedenborgian right as as you do, or as Jason does, um, even though he can't say it correctly. Um, but you touched on something really interesting. You talked about the three heavens, and um, I know we're going to talk about later how the Swedenborgian right kind of dips its toe in in religion because. Swedenborg the man, he was uh, you know, he was a theologian and he studied religion and would write books on that for a good portion of his life. So how much of that, you talked about the three heavens, how much of that was Swedenborgian, I guess, dogma, um, and how much of it permeated the right at the time when it first, when it first came out?
3: So there is um, so there's three different you know versions of this right that we'll get into, but the three heavens um, are I mean they're fundamental Swedenborgian theology. You know if you read uh, uh, of heaven and hell, one of his first books, he goes into the three different heavens, the different beings that he meets. But you know when you get to this kind of quasi Rosicrucian version of the degrees, um, they kind of they don't go in depth with you know what Swedenborg would have thought because at the time there a lot of Swedenborg's books had been destroyed and he wasn't necessarily as well known as he is today with like you know the different um, uh, church movements that he did inspire and the different Swedenborgian uh, groups that are out there today. Um, but I like the. well, I mean, if you're looking at the third version of the right, the. Kind of interpret those three w- heavens more kabbalistically than they would a pure Swedenborgian. Now, what's interesting about Emanuel Swedenborg is that you know his theology began um, as he was traveling abroad with his father Jesper. Now, his father was a preacher, and he was a renowned preacher within Lutheranism. He was known for giving really passionate, fiery sermons, but And this is the thing that got him in trouble later on. He emphasized the virtues of communication with God rather than faith alone. He wasn't a big fan of St. Paul. Um, But, you know, he was. Blasphemy. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. but he was able to, you know, create such an impression and get such big crowds. King Charles XI appointed Jesper as Bishop of Sakara and a professor of theology at Uppsala University. Now, Uppsala uh, is where Swedenborg would attend as well. And Swedenborg dedicated the first half of his life to just studying natural sciences, Um he, after he graduated the university, he was made a, an assessor to the Royal College of the Mines of, uh, Mines of Sweden. Um, he shifted to studying anatomy, one of the most interesting things that um, I mean, from a psychology background, I think one of the coolest things Swedenborg ever did was when he shifted to the study of anatomy, he sought to use, he sought to create an interface between the soul and the body. And he made several significant discoveries in physiology. But most notable is he had the very first concept of a neuron, which led to mm-hmm. recognition of the nerve cell almost a century later. Um, mm-hmm. He also had interesting theories regarding the cerebral cortex and its relation to hierarchical organization in the nervous system through mm-hmm. the localization of cerebral spinal fluid and how those functions of the pituitary gland like this man was a genius uh he was renowned and known in mathematics um one of his one of the books that gave him the most you know renown um across europe was uh the philosophical and mineralogical works um this is kind of like his attempt to do a quasi alchemical text um, where he talks about philosophy, metallurgy. Um, he also, you know, has uh, a few different and, or sorry, mm. a few newer ways to smelt copper and iron. So he was one of the most established minds at the time. Um, he was known all across Europe. He was a sought-after academic. He traveled to different universities. He gave lectures. Uh, but, you know, like you were saying, he had that shift into mysticism and into theology later in life. At the age of 56, he started experiencing visions of angels, spirits. He started having these dreams where he was taking the other realms. Mm-hmm. Um, he Emmanuel in his first book maintains that Christ appeared to him in a vision and opened his perception to be able to have a dual consciousness of mm-hmm. both this life and the spiritual life. Um, And he called this his great awakening. And it was such an impactful, uh, such an impactful experience that he dedicated the next 28 years of his life to just uh, developing his own kind of theology. And that um, uh, some would say was, you know, uh, heretical but is, you know, a vastly different interpretation of what, uh, you know, Christian mysticism or Christianity should be.
0: Was yeah. it more more akin to gnosticism than Pauline Christianity, I'm assuming?
3: Yes, because it's uh, it's all about the communication with God, but Swedenborg believed that the that there are you know these uh, so he believed that man was made out of you know the body, the mind, and the soul. The soul is that divine spark, right? Yeah. You know, it, it's connected to God. We can't necessarily experience it, but he had a he focused mostly on free will. So if you focus more on the spiritual, your mind shifted towards more the heavenly perspective. Mm. If you focus more on like, you know, your base functions, your ego, your body would or your mind would shift more towards the body and limit your perception only to, you know, what we can physically sense, right, Um, you know, through our five senses. So he placed a lot of emphasis on free will, because if you associate more with the heavenly you will eventually, as you transverse these three heavens, transform into an angel if you focus on the body, then you'll sink mm-hmm. lower and you will transform into more of a demonic being what like mm-hmm. certain cool, uh, schools would call shades uh, sounds like a it sounds like somebody had
1: let's see Dante and uh Enoch under his pillow when he went to bed at night because thats <laughs> you know it sounds very the the turning into an angel part that sounds very Enochian right um you know if you get into the later works that you know definitely did not come before BCE um and uh but when you were talking about traveling up and down the first thing I thought of was Dante you know and his Inferno and his Paradiso and his Purgatorio um you know those same travels led by different people and stuff but um Another question for you, brother James, the, um, when did the right come before he start when he started having these revelations or was it before when he was traveling around with his dad and, you know, getting all the,
3: the, uh, what do you call it? The, uh, revival type, uh, sermonating. Yeah, so actually, the right has absolutely nothing to do with Swedenborg. Um, Swedenborg died in 1772. The third uh, Swedenborgian right, the one that you know we know of as a Masonic right, uh, didn't really get started until 1860. So, so there is this like in between area um, where you have these occult groups kind of fill the gap between Swedenborg and between that Masonic right. So. Um, there is a, uh, a fella, Anton Joseph Don He was a Morris Benedictine monk, and uh, he was an alchemist. He was a writer. Um, he was really into hermeticism in like 1750s, and uh, he was, uh, I want to say he worked at the Abbey of St. Germain. And he became a devout student of hermeticism. Now, you know, in the early church, you know, uh, Hermes Trismegistus was regarded as a saint. At this point, you know, past the Inquisition, all that had pretty much been removed. So when he returned to France, he was defrocked um, and he went uh, for the first time. uh, he, He actually, you know, being deemed a heretic by the Inquisition, he fled to exile in Berlin. Now, Frederick the Great, Frederick uh, II of Prussia, he actually appointed him curator of his library. And this is where he continued to study and catalog all these old alchemical texts um, that were in his library. But the one thing he discovered um, in this library were the many mystical works of Immanuel Swedenborg. And he was the guy that actually uh, translated them from German into French for the first time. Now, he began to, uh, you know, read through Swedenborg's visions, and he actually interpreted them through alchemical and hermetic lens, as opposed to strictly a Christian one. Because, you know, even though there's... You know, whenever you get into like these spiritual movements, there's a lot of crossover as far as themes that go. You know, whether it's French Gnostic tradition, Hermetic tradition. Swedenborg, he did not have access to, you know, really any of these Hermetic or alchemical texts to my knowledge. You know, it was all just his visions and, you know, what he was coming up with, his original ideas, um, even though there was some crossover. So, you know, Pernetti he was able to interpret this, uh, you know, this uh, system through the alchemical and hermetic lens for the first time. And uh, by doing this, he actually met with uh, Polish Count Thaddeus Grabinaka, another Swedenborgian uh, devotee. And, you know, Swedenborg, he created this mystical, or they uh, combined this alchemical info and this Swedenborgian info, and they created the Illuminati of Berlin in 1778. Now, its first members were Prince Henry of Prussia, King Frederick's brother, and Jack um his older brother. And, uh, you know, there were other like notable artists and aristocrats, but the group was short lived because, uh, yeah, King Frederick found out that uh, his brother had gotten involved in this weird group. And, uh, you know, they were practicing alchemy, uh, theurgy, ceremonial magic. Like they were pretty much in it for the whole shebang. Uh, when Frederick found out, um, His brother was involved, uh, and they were actually trying, in his mind, trying to convert him away from Christianity. Um, I mean, he was promptly fired from his role at the library and kicked out of Berlin. So the- he was accompanied by the Count, and they returned to Avignon and ex- uh, about the end of 1784, and they accepted the invitation of Marquise de Vaucros. He was a wealthy landowner. Some say he had Masonic affiliations as well. Um, But they would actually create a temple at one of his properties. And this would be called the Temple du Montabar. Now, it is from this temple that they were able to actually start to get a formal group together again. And they formed the Illuminatis di Avignon. Which reflected, uh, you know, not only the Hermetic, but Swedenborgian interests of Pernetti, but also a blend of Swedenborgianism, Roman Catholicism, you know, sprinkled with a little bit of occultism. Um, They were trying to, you know, recreate the visions Um, that uh, Swedenborg had. So there's a lot of veneration of the Virgin Mary. Um, They uh, had a library of Renaissance alchemy texts, and uh, they really focused on also the mystical interpretation of dreams. Well, wasn't that, Brother James, wasn't that kind of ripe for
1: the time? I mean, there was a lot of that going. You know, it wasn't wasn't just solely exclusive to that. I mean, this was the post-Enlightenment, what yep. super amount of you know uh mysticism, especially when it came to Christian mysticism, a lot of works came from that time and stuff like that. but you talked about um just to go back to something you said because you say a lot um, uh just to go back to something you said prior uh, talking about people's affiliations, whether they were freemasons or not freemasons. if I remember correctly from my reading uh some of the big names in those that uh are purported to be Masonic scholars and authors. Didn't a lot of them have contention about whether Swedenborg was a Freemason or not at all?
3: Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, like I said, the the claim that Swedenborg uh, was a Freemason was the claim of uh, 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 Beswick, the American uh, Grand Master. And, you know, this isn't uh, true at all. Um, uh, both uh, A.E. Waite, um, and uh, some other Masonic uh, scholars, you know, mm-hmm. like R.A. Gilbert, some of the more modern uh, authors as well, they hold that the um, – well, they well, they support Waite's theory that the actual author of this rite was Kenneth McKenzie. Um, so it had nothing to actually do with uh, Swedenborg at all, though there are – you know, as, as these different groups go on, there are um, – you know, the Swedenborgianism is still there as kind of like a root theology, but they kept adding layers of other symbolism on top of it that, you know, by the time you get to the 1860s group, it really is just kind of like a hodgepodge of different symbolism. I wouldn't necessarily call it pure Swedenborgianism in any sense.
2: Hmm. Jim, what about, okay, so you talked about uh, Swedenborg dies um Somebody discovers his writings. They're fascinated by it. And then like, what else do we know McKenzie from? Like what else did McKenzie do that we might be able to connect to, to know some of his other works?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So, uh, well, you know, Pernetti, he had this, or uh, he basically ran this uh, organization for some time and they would actually start to invite Masonic lodges out to their fraternal feasts. And this little group that he had, this Illuminati of Avignon, um, it had at one point more than 100 people, which they reoriented the group and called it the Academy of the Illuminated Theosophists. And, uh, you know, they published books about uh, Swedenborg, and they had like, you know, um, internal papers, things like that. But this group came to an end really abruptly with the French Revolution. Now, after the death of Pernetti, uh, you know the, the they claim the society survived until about 1800, um, but after that it was pretty much dead. Now, Mackenzie. Um, he, I still say that he is the, you know, author of the, of the Swedenborgian degrees that we see in the mid of the 1860s. Um, Mackenzie had a profound understanding of the Western esoteric tradition. He traveled abroad. Um, he, you know, frequented homes of most of the nobility of Europe. Um, and he translated a lot of like ancient texts. Um, and literary works, um, but we mostly know him from a Masonic context as being the author of the Royal Masonic Cyclopedia. Um, very similar to like the Mackey Encyclopedia, it's got pretty much cataloged, uh, you know, an entire text on everything you need to know about early uh, Freemasonry, you know, primarily within the 18th century. Now, they uh, say that uh although whether he whether he got these documents on this travel or not, it remains to be said. But we know that in 1860, Mackenzie traveled to France and he met with Eliphas Livy, who was the leader of a Rosicrucian-based group at the time. Now he uh, McKenzie stated that, you know. He was instructed in the secret teachings of this particular Rosicrucian group. And a year later, while he was still in France, he would also meet with American Rosicrucian uh, Pascal Beverly Randolph, um, who was there. And he was the newly appointed Grand Master of the frater- Fraternitatus Rosicrucis. So in 1864... Uh, Robert Wentward Little found some old Rosicrucian rituals that were supposedly written in German in the storerooms of London's Freemasons Hall, and he immediately turned them over to Mackenzie so that he could actually translate these, right? Um, and he, they wanted to form their own esoteric order. Now, whether that is um, the actual story, whether he got them from Levay, whether he got them from Randolph, we don't really know. Uh, but Mackenzie. Um, he had claimed himself to be initiated into a German Rosicrucian society when he lived in Vienna. Um, whether that's true or not, like I said, we don't know. But we do know that in 1866, after he had gotten documents both from France or if he found them in uh, you know Little or found them in the storeroom with uh, Robert Little, in uh, 1866 with the with Mackenzie's help and Little they find they found the Rosicrucian Society of England society says Rosicruciana in Anglia and the main leaders of this organization were Little William Westcott uh, William Woodman and Samuel McGrether Mathers now if you're going by uh, yeah
1: no, I was kind of doing a like a whoa, that's crazy cuz oh, um, I you had a question. No, no, I won't raise my hand for questions, you know that. <laughs> um, no, you're throwing and I think you're going to get to this. I mean, you're throwing some names out there that were super part of a lot of Rosicrucian bodies, you know. So all these stuff, you know, you mentioned McGregor M- McGregor Mathers, uh, Westcott, uh, I think Yarker was in that group too. Right. Uh, I mean, these are all people who you're buying their stuff on Amazon and you're reading it. And, um, you know, I think, uh, Gerard and Cossé as well, um, yep. you know, became a member of that group. Some of y'all may know who he is. And I think AE weight ended up joining a Swedenborgian group as well. Right. At the turn of the century.
3: Yeah, and as well as uh, Theodore Roos, which we'll know from the OTO, as well as uh, interesting um, William Stanton Moses, who is the founder of the College of uh, Psychic Studies. Ooh. Yeah, yeah. So, like, when we think of the Swedenborgian right, like, my idea is that it was a think tank. For what would become the occult reformation at the time, because you have all these guys that you know get their—I don't want to say their training, but they get—they get into this group and then they go off and they form all their mm-hmm. own groups. Whether it's the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, whether it's the French Gnostic Revival of Martinism, whether it's Theosophy, or whether it's just the American Spiritualist movement. Right, a lot of these uh, folks that were a part of this right. Would go on to be influential just in that overall spiritualism movement.
0: So, oh. Brother James, um, I think my my question is is something I think that's being echoed in the chat. So, where where does the Masonic come in to to this right, and why do we associate it as a Masonic right?
3: Yeah. So uh, after uh, Kenneth McKenzie died. Um, You know, anyone who's familiar with, um, you know, the cipher manuscript story, William Westcott collected Mackenzie's Swedenborgian papers from his widow. And um, it was, you know, at that point that he took some of the loose papers that would go on to be the cipher manuscript of the Golden Dawn. But, you know, here's the thing. I like to think that the Swedenborgian right was almost a proto- Um, you know, French Gnostic Revival, Golden Dawn style group, because there's a lot of things that are similar. So for instance, the Swedenborgian Rite has a double-cubed altar as the focal point of the lodge. Same Mm -hmm. thing as the Golden Dawn. There are, you know, initiations that take place re-entering the Garden of Eden, found both in the Golden Dawn and Martinism. So we can see how these different, like, groups that would kind of expand out had... uh, They were influenced by the uh, Swedenborgian right. And I really think that this was kind of, you know, a right that, you know, McKenzie was working on based off, you know, the fragments of the Cyper manuscripts he had, even though there are some big differences. So once, so once Westcott got those documents and they founded the Swedenborgian right, Um, you know, like I said, it became really influential, you know, with all these different members now, uh, Westcott was the Grand Master of the English chapter. But you know, really Sweden, uh, the Swedenborgian right, as you know, a Masonic right. You know that I mean, it was it was recognized for the time as you know all these kind of quasi Masonic groups were, but it was most prevalent in the United States. Now, Samuel Beswick was actually an Englishman and, uh, you know, he moved to the United States, but he was a Swedenborgian minister and Swedenborgianism was, um, uh, it was popular in parts of, uh, you know, the United States at the time. Um, You know, one of the most uh, prolific Swedenborgian uh, ministers or missionaries, you can consider him as Johnny Appleseed, who went around spreading all sorts of Swedenborgianism. And uh, Swedenborgianism really touched a nerve with a lot of the Christian folk magic that was going on, you know, in these colonial times. So, like, there was a big audience in uh, in the United States for this kind of thing. Um, you know, which is why it would uh, influence the the spiritualist movement later on. But when Swedenborgianism uh, spread to the United States, well, it actually went to Canada first in about 1860, 1859, depends who you ask. But uh, they met in the old Kane Lodge room in Broadway, you know, New York, when they actually did bring it to the United States. And this is where you kind of get a little bit more myth than fact. Because Beswick was claiming that, you know, all the leading masons of New York, he conferred all their degrees word of mouth and secret. Um, he claimed Albert Pike begged him for his degrees, but he wouldn't give it to him. You know, all this stuff that kind of, I think, was more inflating his own ego than anything else. Because, you know, the like the right. Reichs-
0: That's where the Masonic comes in. <laughs>
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the I mean, as a Masonic right, you know, it went from probably like 1860 on to about 1908. It just faded into secu- uh, obscurity pretty quick. So it th- was a short-lived right that started in England, kind of transferred over to the United States, North America. And, uh, you know, it was influential for a very short amount of time. But, you know, whether it was lack of interest from all these members going on to actually form their own occult orders or just, you know, a, uh, you know, more Masons getting more involved with the spiritualist movement as it would develop, the right just kind of died out and there wasn't necessarily any... uh,
2: That's It's interesting because what you're talking about essentially is uh, this is a tangential sort of organization that had enough power players in it to make it, you know, an official sort of side quest in masonry. Uh, if you go to the grandcollegeofrights.org, uh, volume one is the Sweden, Swedenborgian right or Swedenborgian right, and it contains… Uh, I think the six, six degrees that it has in there, uh, we had a question earlier. Somebody said, you know, are these practiced anywhere or does the AMD do them? Nobody does them. Um, I mean, not legitimately that you would, you know, not sanctioned by any Grand Lodge, that is. Uh, but Volume 1 has the primitive and original rite of symbolic Freemasonry, spelled P H R E. Masonry, uh, the fourth degree enlightened Freemason or Green Brother, fifth degree Sublime Freemason or Blue Brother, si- uh, the sixth degree is Perfect Freemason or Red Brother, and then it says it also contains additional Swedenborgian data. Uh, but it came out. Um, it looks like reprinted the last time was 1962. So. But this, this, the Grand College of Rights, people might say, well, what is that? Essentially, they collect all of the old rituals of quasi Masonic and Masonic orders that are defunct. Um, and then they hold the rituals to sort of preserve and kind of, control them in a way. Um like you're not supposed to do table reads or anything of these. They're just for research mm-hmm. purposes. Uh but you know they've got the Martinist order. They have the adonai uh, the Adeniramite Rite. Uh they had uh the, We've right got Memphis,
1: the Memphis Mizraim too, right? Yeah, they they and, did like that, they
2: yeah. did the Rite of Memphis. Then uh they also do uh the uh, the rite of Mizraim and then they do the hermetic rite. Like they've got all of these kind of things and they're just published. So uh, Mason's out there. If you're real curious about some of these older rituals and you know, like, like we are grand college of dot uh, is, is a good place to go for some of these. You can just buy them, but, but you don't, well,
1: remember, don't put on a weird robe and start practicing them. Cause you will get, yeah,
2: they, will, they will show up like, like the vampiric council. Just (laughs) bam,
1: it will go into your garage with all your weird friends and shut you down. (laughs) That's right.
0: (laughs) No one expects the Grand College of Rights Inquisition.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, first element is surprise. (laughs) (laughs) So, James, if what do you think? because we do have quite a number of Masonic tangential rights out there today. You know, a lot of the stuff in the AMD is very, just like receiving the orders of some thing. There's no real degree put on. Uh, But but then there are, you know, outside orders like the golden Dawn, like OTO or um, AA or, you know, uh, just any number of these organizations. And while they might not be directly connected to masonry, do you know of anything that is in the United States anyway, close to the Swedenborgian, right? Or like whether it's Masonic or just kind of tangentially occult.
3: Um. So I, I cannot say I know this from experience, um, but by uh, talking to um, strange brethren on the internet, asking questions to, you know, more occult-minded individuals. From what I understand, there is a group that still operates in Europe, but it is uh, out of the French Gnostic tradition. So, you know, it's probably sanctioned by, like, some Gnostic bishop somewhere who wrote up, uh, you know, he probably has a free initiator as well, and he wrote up his own version of it. As far as, like, a direct lineage to these original groups, probably not.
2: So when are you going to – we had a question earlier. They said, so when is Brother Fry going to put on these degrees?
3: Well, I'm not a member of the Grand College of Rights, so they couldn't kick me out if I did. (laughs) (laughs) Great answer.
0: They will just send you a strongly worded letter.
3: Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, so – so what, So my primary research into it now, and like I said, I've been working on a book for this for quite some time, is I want to reinterpret the grades of the Swedenborgian right from primarily a Kabbalistic perspective, because there, I mean, if you look at, you know, the concept of, you know, the material world and Swedenborg's three heavens. It clearly relates to the three worlds on the tree of life. Um, If you look at the way that, you know, some of the language in the degrees is actually written, I get the inkling that they didn't know that much about the Swedenborgian rites, so they tried to fill it in with hermeticism and alchemy and Kabbalah. And Kabbalah being the thing that I know the most about, I would, uh, you know, I mean, I'm Trying to reinterpret it from just a kabbalistic perspective, point out the alchemical stuff, point out you know the similarities to Swedenborgianism, but you know like you were saying um, with the Grand College of Rights, if you were to go and and just you could just Google it, you know uh, the you know Swedenborgian right, you'll notice that each of the grades, you know whether it's enlightened Freemason, sublime Freemason, or uh, uh, perfect Freemason you'll notice that there's a little number next to it. And it will be, you know, uh, you know, one equals four, two equals five, four equals one. So that is very similar to both the grade structure in Rosicrucian groups and the grade structure in, uh, you know, primarily the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, where they have one equal, oh, one number equal another number. And those numbers change as you move up the grades. And that is primarily to, show or to demonstrate where you are on your journey on the tree of life. So as the, uh, you know, the golden Dawn initiate would go through the different Sephira, uh, the uh, Swedenborgian Mason goes through the different worlds going up to the tree of life. Because if you read the, uh, if you read, you know, the grades themselves, there are mentions of things that are Kabbalistic, but they don't really explain them too much. Or they have like partial, you know, sacred words, but, you know, because their Hebrew wasn't very good, they're just a little bit different. But, you know, they throw, you know, a layer of like astrological stuff on there. They throw a layer of the alchemical stuff on there. So really, I think if you peel it back and you look at, you know, How it relates to you know just the theology of Swedenborg, you'll understand you know the lack of knowledge that one they had about this guy, and two the question arises you know why would they use his namesake if you know the right itself wasn't necessarily Swedenborgian in nature? It was because at the time you know Swedenborg had become I mean he's known as the father of spiritualism. He had become. Uh, this figure that, you know, everyone in, you know, this occult movement kind of got inspiration from at one point or another, he was known, but nobody had the availability to actually study all of the works that he had written because he kept producing more content than I could even imagine. Like I love to write, but Swedenborg, he wrote.
1: So, uh, brother James, I saw this awesome question. Um, and, and I think it's a good capstone to what we've been talking about. So, back, I, I think what this person is saying, back to the, the right itself, what are the lessons it conveys? Like, if we take, you know, regular um, Prestonian masonry, we can distill the, the lesson down to one thing, right? Or at least most of us can. Um, what's, what's the big takeaway? Um, as you progress through the degrees of the Swedenborgian, right? What's, what's that lesson that gets taught?
3: Um, So the enlightened Freemason learns, you know, of the, uh, you know, the, the, the body, the mind, the soul, and they learn that, you know, to be able to separate yourself from the body and focus only on the higher spiritual realms, you have to learn how to control your sensory input. You need to learn how to control your senses Control, you know, the information that you allow to seep into your unconscious. You need to be able to identify and separate that out, so you can distance yourself from one your ego, and two, uh, you know, separate yourself from this material world and focus more on the internal, the sublime uh, Mason. It's all that—that's a degree that correlates to the second heaven or the uh, you know the mind itself. It's all about choice. Um, And it's and, uh, you know, how we how we utilize our choice to, you know, either be more spiritually focused or, you know, more worldly focused. Mm -hmm. And then the sublime uh, or sorry, the perfect Freemason, that great is all about communion with God. But what's interesting about this right? Is that you know the enlightened Freemason? It's all about re-entering the Garden of Eden, and it's all about crossing the gates. And they actually purify you. There's a uh, there's a, a part of the uh, enlightened Freemason degree where they actually like bring you to the northwest corner, and you know they uh, they actually have. I want to say it's the senior deacon comes up to you, and they ha- and they, he takes his rod and he. Go, he like rubs you across like the ankles, the thighs, the stomach, the chest, and then the head. And he talks about how it is actually um, the river of life, the water of Kaim, uh, which is the, the, the different, the four rivers of uh, Kabbalistically, the four rivers, um, you know, of the... Uh, of the Kabbalistic tree of life converging underneath Tifereth. And that is where the, um, you know, the tree of life actually grows in the garden. So it's really all about this idea of achieving balance, um, both astrally as well as materially. Um, And, you know, there's a lot of these, um, there's a lot of these Kabbalistic undertones to it that made me think that they, you know, wanted to do something more Kabbalistic, but, you know, I'm not sure why they... Wanted to go more Swedenborgian with it, given that there's not that much Swedenborg actually in the right. But overall, it is about sh- shifting your mind from, you know, being materially focused to focused on the soul.
0: Mm, that's fascinating.
3: And I guess, you know, if you're looking at it from like the Swedenborgian understanding like the goal is to transform yourself into an angel so you know you gotta earn your wing somehow
1: oh it's a
2: beautiful life that that was uh that's also the premise of heaven's gate (laughs) i'm just saying you were supposed to physically turn into an alien without
0: without the mass suicide right
2: yeah yeah so Uh, 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 Jim, Luminous Knight said, uh, if I was to read one book on Emanuel Swedenborg, what would you recommend? You know, I've seen it in Masonic libraries all over the giant big blue book with the big gold lettering, Swedenborgian, right? But is that necessarily the one to read or should they go after something maybe more academic just about Emanuel Swedenborg himself?
3: Um, I mean, if you... So if you want to... um So, I mean, if you want to know about the Swedenborgian right and you want to actually, um, you know, just learn about the right, read the degrees, you know, read the lectures, what they did. That's the way to go. However, if you I mean, definitely you can read any of the works by Emanuel Swedenborg. uh, But, man, if you think Albert Pike is long winded, Swedenborg is winded. Um, So what I would actually recommend is a book that is called the hidden levels of the mind. And this is uh, Swedenborg's theory of consciousness. And, uh, Oh, I forget who it's by. I want to say Douglas Taylor. Uh, but that book gives you like a breakdown of exactly, you know, what Swedenborg's ideas of consciousness were, how you kind of grow your consciousness beyond these levels of understanding. And he, and he quotes Swedenborg a lot, But he's able to convey it in a way that's understandable for a modern audience. And I think that, uh, you know, if you want to, like, dive into actual Swedenborgianism, that's one of the best resources you can get.
1: Boom. Mm.
0: Adding to my wish list. Hashtag not a sponsor. (laughs)
3: i mean yeah and uh honestly if you go to uh you know the swedenborg or swedenborg.org they have a extensive library of swedenborg's works on there for free and you know if you're anything like me a guy who's got a five thousand pdf library you know it's worth a uh, download just to say you have them
1: Ooh, swedenborg that takes you to the swedenborgian church of north america
3: Yep. Um, yeah. So even though you know Swedenborg never started a church himself, years after his death, um, primarily in North America, some. There, there, there's an influence in Europe as well, but not as strong, Um, you know, given uh, America was more susceptible to, you know, pure spiritualist movement. Uh, Yeah, they the uh, Swedenborgian church is very active. They don't have that many temples, but you know, they do live streams of services and the such. And uh, yeah, if you're interested in Swedenborg, that'd be the best place to start. But, hey, man, I'm I'm browsing their site. They're not a
1: tiny church. I mean, they've got 22 states they've got temples in 22 states and a couple places in canada and i mean they're not tiny yeah
3: yeah and email. if you uh reach out to them via email as i was doing research they are happy to respond and talk about swedenborg at length with you Ooh. in english yeah, yeah. Well, you're going to the North American side, Well, right? You have to
1: ask. You know, you get somebody start rattling in German. You know, it doesn't make for a fun talk for me. You know.
3: Yeah, it's a one sided conversation for sure.
2: Indeed. So, the I think the final question should be like How much are the dues for the Swedenborgian right and do they like green beans?
3: Um, <laughs> Well, I mean, who doesn't like green beans? Am I right? I mean, I eat them probably three times a week now. <laughs>
1: oh, I used to like you until you started talking just then and there. So,
3: yeah, uh, I mean, honestly, and, and, and here's the thing to understand about the Swedenborgian, right? Primarily when Beswick was going around conveying it like word of mouth, it was the same era that you had degree salesmen just going around lodges to lodges, giving you a little elbow and saying, hey, you want to be a grand poobah, the royal order, so-and-so, stick around after lodge. Um, So, you know, there was that nature to the Swedenborgian, right, that once it started getting some acclaim around New York, you know, people were just paying to be initiated. Um, And that was less of a case, in europe because the in europe you know just based on the membership of the guys that were there they were more into the academic side of things as opposed to beswick who seems like he was more in just trying to grow the order as fast as he could and initiate guys so uh you know that entire era of freemasonry where you had all of these you know, little quasi-Masonic groups that kind of pop up and then die within a few years. I find that completely fascinating because, you know, back back in the day before we had, you know, the York Rite, the Scottish Rite, you know, all of these degrees were just being done separately all over the place.
2: So many degrees. So many degrees, so little time.
1: I mean, I, as as Brother James was saying this, I'm like, this sounds like every invitational body in masonry. <laughs> 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 yeah, literally, yeah. it does. Yes, yeah. I would just recommend.
2: I think uh, the, the, along with the books that uh, Jim mentioned, uh, I think you can become a member of the Grand College of Rights for like twenty bucks. Uh, no prerequisite, just Master Mason, I think, and. Uh, the dues are like 20 bucks and you get a free book every year, which is like one of the rituals out there. And you can order uh, reprints of a lot of these. So I don't actually know if they are selling reprints of volume one, part
1: one, which was that
2: Swedenborgian, right. But
1: can I, can I complain for a second before you finish that sentence? Yeah. I, Cause I'm a member of the grand college of rights. I have,
0: it is almost hap- time for us to shut down.
1: Have to show don't tell me what to do. Number one, Number two. I'm talking.
0: Number two. What? I'm sorry. Your mic went out. <laughs> Joe, you're talking on mute. We can't hear you.
3: <laughs>
0: okay. You I that? Yeah.
1: yeah. Um, no. Uh, so <laughs> uh, I, I've been a member of the grand college of rights because I love reading rituals, especially defunct ones. But um are they ever going to let you order stuff online or are you still going to get that stupid piece of paper that gets mailed to you? And that's it's the only piece way of paper still. Yeah. It's a turd, man.
2: You know, they are working on it. Brother Chris gambling over in Indiana, I think has all of the books in his basement. Uh, so when you order a book actually from the paper, he's probably the one who sends it out. I know they're working on it. I mean, it's come, it's, on.
1: come on brother. Chris,
2: if anybody can do it, gambling can. So we'll do see. It. Do it. Awesome. Well, Hey, we are
0: about that time. And so we'll forego the final question and simply say, uh, brother fry, thank you so much for coming onto the show tonight. This was amazing.
3: Hey, thanks it. for the invitation.
0: No problem whatsoever. Happy to happy to have you on anytime you want to, uh, talk about Emanuel Swedenborg and his, uh, is absolutely crazy, crazy, right? So thanks so much, everybody. Thanks so much for everybody watching for all of the questions and all of the comments. Uh, Y'all were awesome and on point tonight. Uh, for those who are who are watching us live, so uh, we'll be back next week with another another fun-filled episode. And uh, thank you so much for watching. And I keep going to to Joe accidentally. Thank you so much for watching. Keep searching for more light. Have a good night.
2: Wow. Wow.